So over the next few weeks, we have invited some of our friends and some people who feel like family um, to share with you. And I love these few weeks in the life of our church and in our calendar because it is important to us that you get to hear from voices that are not just me and Zach, um, that we get to learn from voices outside of one another. And so... We are so thrilled that for the next few weeks, um, you're gonna get to hear from some other people who we trust and care about and think so highly of. They have each chosen a Psalm um, that speaks to them, that they are learning from, that they are going to then teach out of. So we're gonna be in the book of Psalms for a little bit. And our first guest tonight is my good friend, Lindsay Zareb. So would you welcome Lindsay? Um, I met Lindsay about two and a half years ago um, through our graduate studies program at Wheaton College in Chicago. So we met in October of 2020, and in our first kind of week intensive together, I immediately was like, Lindsay, be my friend. (laughs) Um, She is intelligent and thoughtful. Her relationship with Jesus inspires me. It makes me want to know more of him. And um, she is incredible. You're in for such a treat. Um, And she is not from Colorado, so she flew here just for this, which we are so thrilled that you would take time to be with us. And you'll get to hear a little bit more about what she does and her family here in a second. But Kindred, would you pray with me to begin our time together? God, um, thank you just for tonight. God, thank you for who you are, that you are good, that you pursue us. God, that you want us to know you, that you choose to share yourself with us. God, I just pray for each one of us, whatever it is that we are bringing with us tonight, our story, our past, our fear, our joy, um, our uncertainty, whatever it is that is swirling in our head and in our heart, I just pray um, that it would quiet. God, that you would speak to each one of us individually in a way that only you can. God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, and that we would leave here with a little bit more hope than we walked in with. So Jesus, we love you, and we need you, and I pray this in your name. Amen. One more time, Lindsay Zareb. Good evening, Kindred. It really is awesome to be with you this evening. Um, I am coming to you, like Lindsay said, from the Midwest, um, where I live with my husband and three kiddos. They are 11, 10, and 7, and so we are in the thick of all the things. Um, But we lived in the city of Chicago for about 10 years or so, and I used to always say, I am never leaving the city unless we move to the mountains. Well, joke's on me. We landed in the western suburbs. So that's as far west as I got from the city of Chicago. So we live out there, um, and it has turned out to actually be a huge blessing. But I will say it's kind of a dream to be in the shadow of the mountains and getting to talk about the Word of God with you guys tonight. So thanks for having me. And the feeling is very mutual, Lindsay. She is a very wise, faithful woman of God, and you guys are very lucky to have her. I think you probably all know that, so I don't need to... Yeah, amen. So um, we're going to dive into Psalm 18, uh, which is quite a long psalm, but we're going to do it. And um, hopefully um, by the end, we will be in a place where you're like, 
I want to go back and read that whole thing again. So it's important to know um, from the start that this psalm is actually called a praise psalm. And more specifically, it's a victory psalm. So what we know is that David penned this after he was delivered from the hand of Saul and all of his enemies. And I'm not going to go into detail about David's story tonight, but if you're not familiar with him, he ran for his life for a really long time from King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, whose extreme jealousy of David resulted in him hunting him down for years. And then once Saul died, the relief didn't necessarily let up in that. He then was in battle after battle after battle on behalf of Israel. And frankly, when I think of his story, I just feel very tired, like very tired. But this being a victory psalm, I want to acknowledge that the word victory often can have a lot of baggage. But I also want you to know that I've spent a lot of time thinking of you and asking the Lord what he might have for us tonight. And as someone who is a faithful follower of Jesus, who is still waiting on my victory, I want you to know that if you're in it right now, I see you and I understand. Maybe you're not sure that your marriage is going to make it. Or maybe you're still waiting on physical healing. Or maybe you have a child that has stopped, an adult child that has stopped speaking to the family, and you're wondering when they might come back. Whatever it might be, those that are in it right now, I hope this message helps to sustain you. And to those that are in a season of peace, I hope this encourages and strengthens your faith. And for all of us, I hope it keeps us journeying toward Jesus. So the first two verses in Psalm 18 start out, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Notice all the mys, my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my, my, my. God was all those things for David, his rock, his fortress, his deliverer. He was his shield, his salvation, and his stronghold. God knew David, and David knew God. So let me ask you something tonight. When you talk about God, how do you refer to him? Do you say, my God, my Jesus? I think of a toddler, right? When they gain possession of something, whether it's actually theirs or they've just claimed it to be, what do they say? Mine, right? My toy, my remote control. No, it's not. My lollipop. Like, and do not try to come between that little one and their possession. It's theirs and no one better mess with it. Do you view God that way? Do you feel that close to God that you'd hold so tightly only the jar, jaws of life could release your grip. And maybe actually you can say, I've been in seasons where I felt that way, but I'm in one right now where I'm not sure that I do. My hope is that if you're coming into this evening with your fingers threaded through the hand of your God, you're even more confident of the grip that you have on him. And if you're coming here totally unsure of what you're holding on to, I hope you find your hand in his and you walk away saying, my God, my rock, 
my refuge, my strength. Because truthfully, victory is a long lost dream without a grip on Jesus. The next few verses in the Psalm get pretty intense. David writes that he has called out to God and God actually heard him. And so in verses seven through 11, it says, the earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Let's envision this for just a moment. Mountains are shaking because of God's anger. Dark clouds are descending on earth. I see this like when you watch a really wicked storm roll in and suddenly three o'clock in the afternoon looks like 10 o'clock at night because it is so dark. And verse 10 here says that he mounted the cherubim. This isn't some sweet little angelic thing that flies around with a little smile. You know, those like chubby little characters that you see in cartoons and stuff. No, it's actually a fierce winged beast quite different. The point that I think David is trying to make and the one that I want you to hear today is that as you fight, as you continue to wait on victory, this is how God feels with you. He isn't leaving you out there to dry. He's in it with you. And he's also quite angry. These verses are full of colorful language that can be hard to grasp, especially when our idea of God is so focused on love, gentleness, kindness, and patience, which he is, but he's also our defender. In the book Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes, the wrath of Christ and the mercy of Christ are not at odds with one another like a seesaw, one diminishing to the degree that the other is held up. Rather, the two rise and fall together. The more robust one's felt understanding of the just wrath of Christ against all the evil both around us and within us the more robust our felt understanding of his mercy. So the principle applies here too. If God, to the degree that he loves, he also experiences anger on our behalf. Think about it. If someone you loved is wrong, do you get fired up over it? And yet, we don't have the capacity to love the way he loves, so we can't even get as upset as he can get. And yet, to top that off, he can get angry without it ever leading to sin because anger is not a sin. I don't know about you, but my thoughts do not exactly stay pure in those moments when someone I love has been wronged. And because of that, I think we often struggle to acknowledge and understand that he gets angry for us. He does. His heart is grieved when wrongs are done against us, when we pursue him and what we know to be good and true. And yet the battle wages on and victory remains out of reach. He's angry. He's for you. And he's with you. He's your great empathizer. 
When you're mistreated, misunderstood, when the healing feels far, when the restoration feels utterly impossible, his heart breaks with you and he longs for all to be right in the world for you. God is our empathizer. He is your empathizer. But he doesn't stop at empathizing and being angry with us. He steps into action. Verses 16 to 19 say that he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That verse 18, where it says, they confronted me in the day of my disaster. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're already down for the count. You can't take it anymore, and yet the battle continues. Psalm, verse 28 and 29, they say, you, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. And for who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? I love the Lord's word is flawless. Another translation says, all the Lord's promises prove true. Which means the scriptures, which are full of his promises, are true, which then means God is still at work. He is still advocating. He is still rescuing. So no matter where you are in your battle, your story is not over yet. Verse 32 continues with, it is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield, and your right hand sustains me. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. When we remain close to him, despite how we might feel, he will strengthen us, and he will give us what we need to take the very next step. He makes the impossible possible. And I promise you it's, this is not a platitude. It's the truth. I've seen it in my own life, and I've also seen it in the lives of those around me. How does a marriage that has experienced the ultimate betrayal find victory? How does one find hope and joy after the relationship that you thought was the one has ended? And how do you continue to pursue the dream that God has placed on your heart when every door keeps slamming in your face, or there simply aren't any doors to open. The truth of all these situations and countless others is that they're impossible to survive without our sustainer. Victory in all these situations isn't instantaneous. Victory isn't instantaneous. It takes time. And time without God's presence will wear us out. But he keeps our light burning when the world wants to blow it out. He shores up our footing when we're certain that the ground we walk on is nowhere near steady. And he strengthens us when we're certain we're going to crumble under 
God is our sustainer. He is your sustainer. In verses 37 through 45, David goes back and forth between what he has done and what God has done. So 37 starts with, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. He begins with what he has done, and he quickly follows up with the recognition that God paved the way. In verse 39, you humbled my adversaries. Verse 40, you made my enemies turn back. Verse 43, you have delivered me from the attack of my enemies. As he sustains us, he goes before us as our rescuer. David couldn't see what was going on over enemy lines, and we can't either. But we can be confident in knowing that our rescuer, God is working in places we simply cannot see. What David doesn't mention in the psalm, but that we know for certain of his story, is that as he faced Saul and all of his enemies, God also provided an army of men and men of God called prophets. He had his soldiers to fight alongside of him, and he had prophets to help keep him check and point him to God. So I ask you tonight, who are your people? And you guys just finished Exodus, which, by the way, you do deserve a pat on the back. That's pretty amazing that you spent six months in Exodus. Like, it's really remarkable. It's awesome. In there is a story about Joshua fighting the Amalekites. He and the Israelites had victory as long as Moses, who's up on the hill overlooking the battle, keeps his arms raised. But as Moses got tired, his arms started to fall and the battle started to get out of their hands. Do you know what happened next? Aaron and Hur stood beside him and they held his arms. They even rolled a stone under his rear end so he could sit down and rest while they held his arms. We cannot fight alone. And sometimes the very way that God is fighting for and with us is through the people that he brings to us. So if you're in a battle right now and waiting upon your victory, who are your errands and your hers? Often in these seasons, we need people who will help hold us up and also, frankly, who will have faith for the victory that we may not be able to believe. And can I challenge those of us in this room who are in a season of peace to ask God, who could I be an Aaron or a her to right now? God is our rescuer and God is your rescuer. And sometimes he uses us to help. I'm about to land the plane here with my final point, but before I do, did anyone ever watch the show This Is Us? Praise the Lord. Okay, I'm not the only one. And then there's a recent show called Firefly Lane, which has less, it's kind of a girly show, I suppose. My husband would say so, at least. Um, But don't judge me on either of them. The fact, just go here with me for a minute. 
If you haven't seen either show, the gist is that each one starts at one point in time, and instead of following the story of the characters chronologically, the sequence takes you back and forth between the past, the future, and the present. So you may start an episode in a character's childhood, jump ahead to their old age, and back to the present. And I love this way of storytelling. Watching from the beginning, you get to see glimpses of the end as the middle unfolds. Unlike traditional storytelling, where you can try to guess the end, in this format, you have a rough idea of where it's going, but you don't know the exact journey, and that's what keeps me glued to the episode, honestly. They're the best, best shows to binge watch, in my opinion. So what does this storytelling have to do with Psalm 18? Our stories are a lot like this kind of storytelling. Because when you put your hope in Jesus, you know the ending. We may not know precisely how we will get there, but we know the end. And in the end, we will have victory. Which brings me to the last verse of the psalm. Verse 50 says, He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing love to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever. I want to zone in on that phrase, unfailing love, for a moment. In Hebrew, that word is hesed. It has such deep meaning that our English language can't adequately translate it. So while this verse, it's translated as unfailing love, it also means loving kindness, merciful love, loyal love, sure love, enduring love, dependable love, steadfast love, loyalty, divine kindness, big-heartedness, and so much more, including covenantal faithfulness and relentless love. In his book, Inexpressible, Hesed and the Mystery of God's Loving Kindness, Michael Card writes, along with the vast range of meaning associated with the word hesed, now we must add that it is eternal, everlasting, and indestructible. Without this facet, hesed would not be hesed. If it were based on a whim or a momentary feeling, it would not be hesed. If time could wear it down or wash it away, it would not be hesed. But it lasts forever, is ultimately reliable, it never changes, it can always be trusted in, relied upon, asked, and hoped for. What does that sound like? Rather, who does this sound like? Jesus. So if you spring forward in your Bibles to Luke 3 and Matthew 1, you find the lineage of Jesus. Christ came from the line of David. So when the Psalm says God shows his unfailing love to David's descendants forever, he's talking about us as sons and daughters grafted into Christ's lineage by way of the cross. You see, Psalm 18 shows us that our God is hesed. He's unfailing love that empathizes with us, he sustains us, and he rescues us. And with him as our foundation, the rock on which we stand, the refuge in which we hide, we will see victory. We know our ending when we follow Jesus. 
As one of my most favorite pastors and theologians, Tim Keller, used to always say, taking a version of a quote from The Lord of the Rings, all sad things will one day come untrue. Kindred, David saw victory this side of heaven the way we understand earthly victory. And you may as well. But whether you do or not, this is what I hope you walk away with today. Our victory doesn't lie in an outcome. It lies in the person of Jesus. When the battle wages and victory seems far off, there is a gift in the waiting. And I can testify to this. We are stripped of the need for the victory in the circumstance and we become content and eager for the victory in Christ. That is, our hearts begin to shift and they begin to long for more of him above any outcome that we can imagine. Our desire to be like him, to commune with him, and to journey this side of heaven with him exceeds everything so that when we meet him face to face, not only does he say, well done, good and faithful servant, but we can say, hello, my favorite friend, my closest partner, my hero, my parent, my sibling. And that is the ultimate victory.